Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Strecker. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. When we last left Sudan, the Mahdist forces had defeated the Ottoman Egyptians at Khartoum, they'd killed Charles George Gordon, the British envoy who was in charge of evacuating the country of Egyptian and British forces and civilians, and a British expeditionary mission sent in to maybe do something about all of that, that arrived way too late to make any difference. Khartoum had fallen, the Mahdist forces had won, and Sudan was, for all intents and purposes, an independent country. And sure, it wasn't actually being recognized by other countries like, say, the Ottoman or British empires, but, you know, I think it's safe to say that it had well-defined borders, a sense of national identity, it had a government, albeit a new one, and it's mostly kind of a legitimate country at this point. Much more than, say, Sealand or the Kingdom of North Sudan or that type of stuff. So, no, not recognized by other powers, but definitely an independent Sudanese government. Muhammad Ahmad, the so-called prophesized Mahdi, he began rewriting the constitutional structure of the state to be all about him and his particular brand of him-centric Islam. His state was not one that you could critique or debate like a democracy or even a kind of more enlightened monarchy. It was something that you just accepted as religious dogma. For instance, he modified Islam's famous five pillars of faith, a creed familiar to many Muslims, which is all about, you know, faith and prayer and going on Hajj and such. And to this pretty fundamental creed, he added a clause stating that, quote, and Muhammad Ahmad is the Mahdi of God and a representative of his prophet, unquote, which strikes me as ambitious to say the least. Kind of like if a pope were to take the Our Father or Hail Mary and, you know, put his name in there. That would be weird. However, almost immediately after Sudan's revolution, Muhammad Ahmad, the self-proclaimed Mahdi, whom the state was all putatively about, he died. On June 22nd of 1885, Ahmad succumbed to typhus only six months after defeating the Ottoman Egyptians and the British. The new state immediately had a crisis of succession on its hands. So, sorry if any of you thought that Muhammad Ahmad was going to be the main character of this whole arc. Sorry if his death is suddenly making you think, um, who is this story actually about? I do admit the guy is sort of pulling a Ned Stark here. And this death of the Mahdi, it presented a few problems to the state, both politically and theologically politically because there really wasn't any sort of means of succession put in place. It's not like the new modest government could just have an election and get a new Mahdi. If you have the Mahdi who's appointed by God, well, he's kind of irreplaceable. And then there's the theological problem that the Mahdi wasn't supposed to just gain control of the Sudan and die. No, if he really was the prophesied divinely appointed figure that he said he was, well, he still had work to do. There was a big world out there, and a lot of folks thought that they would be exporting Muhammad Ahmad's particular brand of conservative Islam out to it. But, no, instead the man turned out to be very human and very mortal. So after the Mahdi's death, Muhammad Ahmad's various lieutenants started fighting amongst themselves, often politically and sometimes literally. And the victor of the various power struggles would be Abdullahi ibn Muhammad, who would eventually style himself as Khalifa al-Mahdi or successor to the Mahdi. Most sources just call him the Khalifa, so 
I'm just going to call him the Khalifa. And it's kind of an arrogant title, given that that's exactly what the successors of Muhammad were also called. But the political use of big, flashy, religiously intoned titles isn't exactly a new thing for Sudan in this period. And when talking about how this guy was able to make himself the successor, some sources, like Winston Churchill's book The River War, which I mentioned last episode, they include the story about the Mahdi dying of typhus and with his last dying breaths, naming the Khalifa as, well, his, you know, Khalifa. But I don't think that's very likely to have happened. If the Mahdi really had named somebody with his dying breaths, there probably wouldn't have been a politically contentious and sometimes violent succession crisis. It would have probably gone a bit more smoothly. What's more likely is that Abdullahi ibn Muhammad, he represented a large and politically powerful ethnic group in Sudan called the Bagara. And he also had distinguished himself by defeating Hicks, remember him from last episode, and from being one of the principal generals at the Siege of Khartoum. So it seems that the guy who had a lot of political support and a lot of military expertise was able to, well, seize power from his competition. And later on, he was able to justify it with a convenient story about the Mahdi appointing him as successor with his final breaths. I suppose that story about the succession, it could have happened, it's possible, but I do not think it was probable. And the Khalifa, he proceeded with more changes in the government that were justified by and cloaked in the mantle of religion. For example, Islam emphasizes almsgiving and charity as something that's, you know, pious and something that godly people do on a regular basis. And my understanding of this principle is that it's generally supposed to be something that's self-motivated. The Khalifa, however, turned it into a tax. The citizens of the new Sudan were supposed to serve God by serving the state. And there was also the principle of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. Instead of trekking out to the Arabian Peninsula and mingling with other Muslims from all over the world, devout Sudanese expected to make a pilgrimage to the Mahdi's tomb. That was the new Hajj. And there were other changes that included purging Sudan of European and Ottoman influences like Western medicine and industry and alcohol and tobacco and, and that sort of thing. And also wearing a fez, because wearing a fez, that was considered way too Turkish looking. Oh, and there was slavery. Sudan had a long history of slavery, which was illegal in the Ottoman Empire, but being far away from the centers of power, it still flourished even into the late 1800s. And I didn't mention this in the last episode, but Charles Gordon had hopes, vain hopes, I think, of eliminating slavery in the Sudan. It was a huge part of the economy, though, and under the Mahdi and later the Khalifa, it was totally allowed. And one wonders why people who style themselves as men of God, be they in Sudan or the antebellum American South, are so tolerant of the exploitation of their fellow human beings, but that is a rant for another time. Right now, though, modest Sudan probably isn't looking like the best place to live, and it's going to get a lot worse. This revolutionary state, it's going to go to war. And the new modest state, and this new modest state, it had more than its fair share of border skirmishes and internal conflicts. For instance, a few non-Muslim regions of Sudan that followed indigenous religions were never really incorporated into the modest state, and they were pretty much in a state of war or conflict or rebellion with the government for the entire time. But more significantly than that, Ethiopia was right there. 
And as I mentioned last week, Ethiopia is really the only actor in this story who comes out looking, you know, okay. The Ottoman Egyptians, they governed Sudan pretty poorly, the modest state was totalitarian and terrible, and next episode, the British are going to come back, and they're going to look like a bunch of blood-soaked gun monsters, and Ethiopia is the only country in this narrative that I, you know, sympathize with. And things don't go well for them. When the modest forces ejected the Ottoman Egyptian and British forces from Sudan, a whole lot of Egyptians and British, they had to get the hell out of there. And British, they cut a deal with the Ethiopian emperor, Johannes IV, and said, Hey, we've got these guys who need to escape out Sudan's back door, and if you help, we're going to back your claim to a few port cities in the region. What do you say? And Johannes IV, he was no friend of Ottoman Egypt, but he knew a good deal when he saw it, and he took it. And the remaining Egyptians and British, they were able to escape from the modest state. This, as you might imagine, annoyed Sudan somewhat, and in September of 1885, the new state, not even a year old, launched what would be a years-long conflict against its neighbor. And at the start, things did not go well for the Sudanese. Uh, Ethiopia defeated them in the first major battle, and had things been slightly different, Johannes IV, he might have won this war, but he had a few other things to deal with at the time. The first was a pair of regional rebellions inside Ethiopia that Johannes IV's government was able to crush, but they still look a lot of time and resources away from other pursuits, like, say, beating Sudan. The other big distraction was Italy. Italy, not wanting to be left out of the whole European conquest of Africa thing, decided to invade Ethiopia and Somaliland, kill people, and take their stuff and land. That's just what European powers were kind of up to back in this era. And again, the Ethiopian military was actually able to deal with this. The Italians were not that great at colonialism. But now Johannes IV and his generals are dealing with rebels, they're dealing with invading Italians, and they're dealing with the Sudanese all at once. It's quite a bit. And the modest forces ended up taking advantage of this chaos, taking advantage of these spread-thin Ethiopians, and sacking the Ethiopian city of Gondar. When they did, they made a point of burning the non-Islamic holy sites and continued on their way. This was serious, and in 1889, Johannes IV knew that he had to focus his efforts on fighting the Sudanese before another city got sacked. He marched to meet the modest forces, and when I say that he marched, I meant that he, the king, literally was going to lead the army himself. He made his way to northern Ethiopia to offer battle to the Sudanese. And this turned out to be a kind of noble, but actually terrible idea. I have to respect a king, or other military leader, who fights alongside his soldiers and exposes himself to danger. There's something kind of romantic about that, and also even a little egalitarian and inspirational. But the problem with having the head of state right there in the thick of things exposed to danger is that you have the head of state right there, in the thick of things, exposed to danger. He's in a battle. There are bullets all over the place. And one of them hit Johannes IV. When that happened, the Ethiopian forces noticed that their king had been wounded, and they ended up breaking and retreating. Johannes IV died sometime later from his injuries. And had the king not been injured in that battle, and had the Ethiopian troops not broken... 
Who knows how this would have gone? But then it gets even worse for the Ethiopians because, to add insult to injury, the modest forces, they later on, overtook the Ethiopians, stole Johannes IV's body, mounted it on a pike, and carried it back to Khartoum. And this is not the first time that a dead body has been used as a grisly trophy in this story, and it's not going to be the last. Ethiopia withdrew, dealt with a succession crisis, and Sudan basically won this war. And the war with Ethiopia didn't result in Sudan taking over any territory, but it was quite the propaganda victory, and it showed that the modest military was one to be reckoned with. So, so far we've had a dead religious leader, a succession crisis, religiously enforced taxation, slavery, war. Well, now it's time for things to get really bad for Sudan, with some privation and famine. Sudan, it was cut off from the outside world economically. Earlier I said that other countries were not recognizing the modest regime, and as the modest state was getting off the ground, the various European powers, they were busy slicing up Africa into various colonies. And, as you can imagine, these European possessions, they were not in a position to become economic or trading partners with the Sudanese. They were under European control, and the Europeans were not going to authorize anyone to be doing business with this upstart, rebellious, religiously motivated state. So the Sudanese, they didn't really have any trading partnerships. They were in a state of autarky, of a state existing on its own in trying to support itself just internally. This is a really, really difficult thing for a country to do, and talking about autarky and whether or not it's survivable, that is an entirely different podcast. Maybe the only country that has lived an autarkic existence and not suffered horribly from it is Japan during the Sakoku period. But even that is sort of debatable as their economy was also kind of falling apart and breaking at the seams toward the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. But again, I am getting distracted. The point is, Sudan is economically isolated. And at the end of the 1880s, the country was struck by a famine. And because of its economic isolation... Sudan didn't have any way to feed itself. The massive famine that would have been challenging for just about any state, it was even worse for one that was comparatively new, that didn't have the institutions to deal with such a thing, and was not able to trade for any food to come in from outside. Millions of people died in this famine, and it's certainly tempting to blame the Khalifa for how catastrophic this all was, and a lot of sources do. They see the famine as sort of a function and manifestation of his misgovernment. Like the Khalifa comes in, he's opportunistic and cynical and is exploiting religion for his own power, and somehow that turns into an environmental catastrophe. You know, how after Scar and the hyenas take over to Pride Lands, somehow the verdant green area where all the lions live, well, it somehow changes to resemble Mordor. You know, like that. I don't think it was quite like that. The famine was not caused by the new Sudanese government, but the newfound economic isolation of the country and the inexperience of the new rulers and, well, ruling, that seriously aggravated how badly it all played out. So I can totally understand why Sudan might have wanted to shake off Ottoman Egyptian rule, but this whole project is going very, very, very poorly for them, and you might be thinking why anyone would put up with this. And over the decade and a half of the modest government, a lot of folks inside Sudan, they said, yeah, this is terrible. 
which rebel. There were a fair share of uprising and rebellions, which were all summarily crushed by the Khalifa, and there were all kinds of demonstrations in public spaces of the execution of political rivals, of rebels, of that kind of thing. And a new modest government, it had been born of revolution. And a fan of history like me is tempted to make comparisons with, say, revolutionary France in the reign of terror, or Soviet Russia with the purges, where you have a lot of idealism, ideology, and revolutionary fervor that makes a country, and later on, as things get bad, it descends into a bunch of infighting, public executions, and generally inflexible totalitarian nastiness that is just as bad as the old government that the revolution replaced. I think that kind of might be a superficial comparison, but I don't think it's an entirely wrong one. So Sudan, it is weathering all kinds of hardships now. Totalitarianism, slavery, famine, war, rebellion. The modest government technically survives all of those things, but next week, we'll see it encounter something it won't be able to survive. The mechanized wrath of the British Empire. That's next week on Interesting Times. If you have any questions, comments, anything like that, get a hold of me on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Interesting Times with Joe Streckert. Uh, I love seeing your comments there. Or, even better than that, leave a comment on iTunes. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review. Uh, that's actually really helpful for the show. It helps other listeners discover this thing. This podcast is completely ad-free and independent because of your support. You can support the show at interestingtimespodcast.com. And thank you very much to all of you who so far have decided to do that. I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Also, joestreckert.tumblr.com. Uh, check me out there. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you guys next week.